Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 82 of the Howie Games Part A. I'm pretty pumped with this one. But right off the top, lots of love to all you good people out there for taking up some of your valuable time and giving the show a listen. Alrighty, this episode was 18 months in the making and it features a true great of Australian sport, Grant Hackett. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. Find out by and by. A three-time Olympic gold medalist, you'll most likely know Grant as a great in the pool, a man who dominated the brutal 1,500-metre freestyle year after year after year. However, what you most likely won't know, and what I had no understanding of at all, was the drive within Grant Hackett. Sure, the best are always driven, but Grant's approach towards achieving success is beyond anything I've heard before. His descriptions in this episode of what he was prepared to put himself through to win, both physically and mentally and spiritually, I guess, and conversely, how brutally he views performances where he didn't win, well, he had me absolutely captivated. Can't they see they hold the key? Could make things better if they try. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? If you've ever asked yourself the question, what does it actually take to be the best? Well, Grant's answers laid out bare in the most uncompromising, single-minded, beautiful, phenomenal way. From where I sit, Grant Hackett is simply awesome. Hacky is now very successful in business, fighting fit, has a beautiful family and is a proud and loving father. I love the year 2019 for so many reasons, but this hour and a half with Grant was undoubtedly one of my highlights. Enjoy the force of nature that is Grant Hackett OAM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I. Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Grant Hackett, welcome to the Howie Games, how are you? Very well, thanks Howie, how are you? I'm very well and I don't want to overstate this but I am very grateful I know you're a busy man and we've been talking about doing this for, what, a year and a half? Probably about 18 months, it'll be um, right. <laughs> and now it is a good time for both of us, so I really appreciate it. You've come in here in your million-dollar suit with your gold tie and your nice watch and you look fit and fighting and you've got a massive smile on your face. Life's obviously going pretty well. Yeah, no, things are great. So uh, part of the gig working in finance, you uh, tend to have to wear a suit day to day. But, um, yeah, no, things are going fit, healthy, focused, and, and work's going really well. Kids are great. So... No, life feeling pretty balanced at the moment, which is nice. And nice and busy. I think I'm better when I'm busy. I was, as I just mentioned, I was just coming back from a three-week break in Queensland and uh, I was reading a bit about you when my wife was driving back to the airport yesterday and was reading some stuff out to my kids. And it struck me, you've probably never read Arnold Schwarzenegger's got a book. And it could be three books, mate, because <laughs> in it he was the world's best bodybuilder. He was yep. the world's biggest movie star. Yep. And he was the governor of California. Yeah. He could have written three books, Absolutely. separate books. I almost feel that about you. You've had such a varied life. And then you sat here, which I want to touch on now, and I said, what do you do? And you just went with some real high-powered finance stuff, <laughs> like really specific, highly educated, um, 
high-powered stuff that you do now as a job for someone that doesn't work in finance. I like yeah. listened to it and I thought, wow, he's, he's, he's got a bit going on. Yeah, it's quite funny. I mean, people do look at you quite one-dimensionally because yeah. they see you win the gold medals in the pool and that's what you naturally get associated with, which I understand. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more to you than that. And I always enjoyed my study. I studied finance. I, I did my master's degree. I continue to study. I'm always educating myself. So for me, that's a, a constantly moving thing. And I was always fascinated with finance, even when I was swimming. And I started trading shares as young as 15 years of age. Did you? Yeah. So and I've been on the board of you know, hedge funds and run you know, a diversified financial services firm. And you know, I've always enjoyed leadership as well. And I think that's why I naturally gravitated towards captain of the team. So, And it, and it is funny you mention a book. I mean, I've been approached on several occasions to, to write a book and there'd be a few interesting chapters in there. Ooh, I can guarantee there that. Um, but I actually thought this story's not over for me yet. And so that's why I've kind of balked at that and thought that there's more to come. The first share, can you remember what that first share you bought or not? Was, were you like uh, a little penny miner type trying to make a million overnight or uh, what were you into? It was, uh, I can actually remember, I don't even actually want to quote the company because they're around today and Go it on. didn't do too well. Go on. Uh, I think it was Cellnet, it was called one okay. of them early on. Okay. And then uh, there was the dot-com burn. Yeah. I, I burnt myself there, but I actually <laughs> learnt a lot through that period. And, I, you know, oh, one, that bubble burst. But, um, yeah, I think when you start to play around and experiment with things, as long as you don't, you know, put too much into something like that. You do learn a lot through, you know, your mistakes and obviously your winnings. And we had a few good ones along the way as well and uh, got a lot out of that. But I just always enjoyed anything to do that was commercial, anything commerce related, anything business transaction related. I always enjoyed that sort of stuff. So I just continue to pursue that outside of swimming as well. You just sat down and told me in the next three weeks to a month where it could go yeah. uh, geographically in the world. So potentially the next month you could be in. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm popping up to Hong Kong, across to Toronto, down to New York, around to London, possibly Zurich as well, and, uh, you know, travel every week here. I do that in about nine days wow. as well, so it's very much in and out. I mean, I like to get back and spend as much time with my family as possible, so I'm you know, based out of Melbourne, do a lot of day trips to Sydney, pop over to Perth probably two to three times a year, up to Brisbane, Gold Coast, um, <sighs> quite a bit. You're a plane and, and frequent flyer. Yeah, on two airlines. <laughs> are, are, you, are you with Virgin in that real swanky Ricky Ponting style club where there's like your own separate area? No, I don't get the, the separate areas. Really? I'm one of the people. Really? Yeah, yeah no, uh, I always... Okay. I, I'm actually pretty efficient at airports. Most right. of the time I don't even get time to go to the lounge. So I know where to park, you know, do the same thing. I'm in there, I'm straight to the gate. I've already checked in. I'm off, carry on, off on the other side, do what I need to do, then get home. Do you listen to podcasts on these travels or not? Are you a podcast uh, listener or not? I, I have. I have. It's funny. The last one I think I listened to was an interview that we just spoke about uh, before was Lance Armstrong. Right. So, and I, I found that quite a powerful one. And and every now and then I get sent things. I, I like to read uh, or read or listen to things around leadership. I quite enjoy that. Um, I'm even reading a book that's a compilation actually at the moment in Harvard Harvard business review around mental toughness and just the various stories from different backgrounds. So I enjoy a lot of those sorts of things, whether you're learning from anything in the military, like a SAS style huh. or Navy SEAL style to, you know, things like other Olympians and what they've gone through or challenges or adversities they've faced and how they've been able to overcome them or even, you know, business feats where you see people they started with nothing and have created, I don't know, you know, what Steve Jobs did with Apple for argument's sake, starting in the garage. I always find those stories fascinating and uh, you always try and pick something out of that that you can put into your day-to-day -day just to make yourself that little bit better. I saw you swim at Athens. I was lucky to have a night off and we'll get to, to that yeah. in the general conversation. 
to me, you're one of the most mentally tough athletes I've ever seen operate. Mm. Do you consider yourself mentally tough and did you start that way or can you teach yourself that you're mentally tough, you reckon? Um, and that's a pretty big question too. It is, it is a on. very big question. And my, my coach would say, just to use someone else's words, that I was the toughest person he's ever seen train. So, and I was quoted as the toughest trainer in the world. So I guess I, I must be pretty tough. I don't want to be ignorant to that. And you want to be humble, but I know I, I had a real ability to push myself. Um, I think looking up to a brother who was six and a half years older than me pushed me because he was an incredibly good athlete. Um, and I think my dad, you know, was a policeman for 41 years. He's an incredibly tough man too. I was always a very relaxed, natured sort of person, but underneath highly competitive, highly driven. And I enjoyed that part of training where I could push myself to the absolute edge and then see what else I've got. And I always enjoyed showing my coach I could do a little bit more. I think for me, I knew how tough his training was, the sets that we do were, that no one else in the world could do them. And if I could then add a little bit more to it, it would just make me a bit better. And I, and I always wanted to, I had something to prove to him because he had very high standards. So I think it was one and the same. I think, yes, I was born with that ability to be able to push myself and endure things to quite a degree. But I think the environments that I found myself in, probably because I gravitated towards them, actually harnessed that or amplified that sort of part of my personality. So, Hacky, when you get to that point where your body is screaming stop, mm. where would you go in your mind to take it that extra? It's funny. I, I actually do practical things. I breathe. Um, even when I was in the water, I would start to breathe. I would start to calm myself. I'd use little um, mental tricks along the way. So. Like what? Um, so when I get to the 1,000-metre mark um, in the 1,500-metre freestyle, and if it was a really tough race, because some of those races were absolutely brutal, how hard I'd push myself, and I would go out really hard too. So I was in that, that high pain threshold right from the get-go. Um, I would start counting down. So I'd go 500 metres, 400 metres, 300 metres. And then if I was really hurting, it would be 300 metres, 250 metres, 225, 200 metres, you know. And then every time you hear that in your mind, you know there's just that little bit less to go, and it just keeps you going. And sometimes... I've found with things that are really hard, really excruciating, it's like goal setting, right? If the goal's too big, it's too far away, you're disengaged. But if you can break it down into small digestible bits, then it just makes it manageable. And I've found that with pain as well. So if you go, if I just got to get from here to there, I can do that. But if you thought about where you had to finish up, it might be just too hard and you might give up. So, And, I, and I've always found I've had a bit of an inability to give up on things, which is a kind of my best and worst trait because sometimes you've got to know when to stop. Um, sometimes mm. you've got to know when not to, to give in um, regardless of, of what the circumstances or adversities are. So, And that's kind of my persistent nature. So, you know, I always find your strength is your weakness as well. We were talking, as you mentioned, mate, about Lance and I was talking about Cadell Evans in, yeah. in an earlier podcast. He had ways of dealing with pain and he, he had an unbelievable description of pain. My limited time around swimming, running around the pool deck, asking silly questions, and Nicole would be up Livingston in the uh, area where the people that know what they're doing uh, are talking. And she would You talk, had a good bluff, by the way. Yeah, thank so. you. I appreciate that, Hacky. She would talk about the piano falling on the back. Is yeah. that the correct expression yeah, of the yeah, swimmer? Yeah, 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 yeah. So describe the pain to me when you are giving everything in the pool. Describe what the pain's like. Oh, I, the best way I put it whenever I, I talk about some of the races that I went in that were excruciating is like if you're a normal person, handcuff, handcuff yourself to the treadmill put it on um, the max speed, which is usually 20 k's an hour, <laughs> then put it on the max incline, then stay there for 15 minutes and see how you feel afterwards. Wow. That's actually how it feels. 
And I give people a bit of perspective because we just saw the marathon runner go over two hours, under two hours yeah. for the first time. And I said, you know how good that is? And people are like, not really. They don't really have perspective of when someone specialises in something, just how amazing they are. I said, well, you know, the treadmill speed, it doesn't even go up all the way to basically he's got to run, what, 21 k's an hour yep. around there. And I said, he's got to do that for two hours straight. And you see people who can run, you know, 14 or 15 k's an hour on a treadmill and they're flying and whacking their things. So, you know, when you when you hear about it and you get a bit of perspective on something, it makes it easier to understand. But it really is excruciating, the, the pain that you have to push yourself through. And it's a different sort of pain in the shorter events because it's a high spike pain, high lactic acid. You're more of a muscular athlete too. So, you know, I'd see those guys hurt more after than I feel my race would. You know, they'd be vomiting mm. afterwards and, and all that sort of stuff too. Yeah. Just before we get to where it all began, I wanted to ask you, what is it that you actually do these days? Because it impressed me when you said it, so now I need <laughs> you to impress our audience. Um, so I'm a, a CEO of an ASX-listed company, so it's um, obviously listed on the stock exchange and um, it's a diversified financial services company. So it's got three different businesses underneath it. So one's an investment bond business, which is not a fixed interest product like a normal bond. So um, it's just more of a tax structure uh, that's administered under a life company. Then we have an administration business and then we've also got a hedge fund business that's based out of Hong Kong. And um, I've got a very ambitious boss and um, we're certainly looking for new acquisitions in financial services all the time, particularly with the Royal Commission. There's a lot of dislocation in the market at the moment. So we're very active in that space too. So yeah, studied finance and um, always enjoyed that space. I, I worked at Westpac BT for the better half of a decade and have been involved in quite a few different other businesses and uh, yeah, have a real passion for this space and absolutely love it. And I, I love the leadership aspect. I, I really like helping and supporting people and watching them do well and step up in their careers. And in fact, our, our, our life company CEOs just got this week um, executives of the year of, of a life company. And mm -hmm. we actually got our business development manager, one of our distribution team members actually got BDM of the year too. So um, I love seeing that sort of stuff. I love seeing people do well and uh, excel. So I think I always sort of find myself in those types of positions. I gravitate towards those. You're obviously so passionate about it. If I had 100 mil, Hacky, <laughs> just say down in Bowen Heads, I was sitting on 100 mil that no one knew about, where would I put it? Uh, well, I can't give financial advice because I'm not a planner, so it's just general advice. Yes. So let me just uh, put okay. that disclaimer gonna, out let's there. Let's put the legal disclaimer uh, out if there. If you had $100 million, depending on what structure was sitting in, whether it was a company or your individual name, that would determine a few things as well. But uh, we, we don't, we're we actually a tax structure, so it's a max tax rate of 30%. Usually around 20 21% is the effective rate given your income management, so your imputation credits, franking credits, et cetera. Um, I would probably put it in a structure like ours, um, knowing that you're going to pay um, a tax rate that's under the highest marginal tax rate of 47%. We have a diversified investment menu, so we've got almost 50 options on that menu that are across all the major asset classes. So you can get you know, Australian equities, you know, global equities, you can get fixed interest, you can get cash, you can get a myriad of you know, investment products. And depending on what your risk profile is, Howie, would determine how you would actually structure that. See, if anyone's listening, they are now going, Jesus, Grant Hackett is a clever bloke. After we finish this, if you could explain to me how I get the hundred million, <laughs> then we might. We'd push all on. like to have the answer to then that we'll question. Push on from there. That's for sure. All right, mate. Where did it start? Where did you first find yourself in a pool? Swimming lessons like the rest of us? Uh, well, no, it was quite funny. I actually um, 
found myself in there more by default than anything else. Um, my brother, like I said before, he's six and a half years older than me. My dad's a policeman. We got transferred up to Innisfail in North Queensland, joined the local surf club, Eddie Bay. My brother was winning the beach sprints and all that sort of stuff, wanted to do the surf race one day. Um, parents didn't really know if he could swim or not. Um, anyway, he did it, did quite well, got third. However, was filthy because uh, in first and second were two girls. And he's an extremely competitive bloke. And uh, he said, Mum, Dad, can I do some swimming lessons? And they were quite dismayed because when they went to the local swim coach, he said, look, just come five, six times a week, where every other sport was kind of twice a week at that age. He was only 10. six times. And, you know, when you you'd be here at 5 a.m., so all those sorts of things, I think mum and dad were like, what are we getting ourselves into here? So when he did that, I jumped in the public lanes at age sort of four. And then slowly, you know, I started to integrate myself more into the, the training sessions. And then dad, I remember he said, look, if you learn how to dive, um, I'll buy you a Voltron, which was the big toy at the time. Uh, back in about 1985, this was. <laughs> the Voltron. The Voltron. That's what it was. <laughs> and I loved that thing and I wanted it very badly. It's only five years of age. And anyway, so I ran up to the swim coach and I said, teach me how to dive. And I knew how to do it that day. So, and to his credit, my dad bought the toy and I was I was very happy. So I felt like swimming had maybe incentives around it. If I did well, I'd get something out of it. And uh, anyway, I, my brother ended up being state surf champion within six months. We moved back down to the Gold Coast where I had them, my coach for 22 years, Dennis Cottrell. And um, funnily enough, my brother, his biggest rival uh, at around the age of 14, 15 was Kieran Perkins. They used to finish first and second in everything, which wow. not too many people know. Um, and then obviously, you know, I came up and was his biggest rival towards the back end of his career. So, yeah, that's kind of how it all started and all began. But I only got into it because my brother wanted to do a surf race one day, got beaten by those two girls. So we should probably thank those two girls. Wonder where they are now. <laughs> exactly. I wonder where they are. So at what age did you start to realise that you were probably, and this is no time for modesty, probably mm. better than most people in the pool? Um. My parents would say they almost thought I was a docile kid because <laughs> I was so relaxed and easygoing. Not much really phased me. Um, but when I was five, I, I did this race and I touched the wall and I yelled out in the entire swimming pool, did I win? And apparently I won by a long way. I can't even remember this moment. <laughs> Mum said she cringed and was pretty embarrassed. <laughs> and she's like, where did this come from? So I even hid that side of me quite well. For, well I didn't mean to. It's just the way I was. Um, and then I think when I got sort of around the age of seven, eight, nine, you know, I was in Surf Life Saving. I was in Surfers Paradise Surf Club, looked up to the likes of Trevor Hendy when the Uncle Toby Super Series was on and loved that. And my brother ended up doing that for eight years. And and so I was right into that to that sport. And I would always win races there pretty consistently. So I, I was always very competitive. I played rugby league as well um, for seven years and I enjoyed that. But swimming... Um, I didn't know, and I, I mean, I know you said it's not a time to be humble or modest or anything like mm. that, but I didn't know how good I could really be. I just knew how badly I wanted to be good. And so when I was 13 and sitting at the Olympics, I um, I remember that moment when Juan Antonio Samaranch, the president of the IOC, ran out, you know, Sydney. The, the winner is Sydney. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I want to go and I want to win. And that's all I thought to myself. Like I didn't just want to be a number, I wanted to win. And I had that at the age of 13. So I wrote down all my goals. I wrote down Kieran Perkins' best time for every single age because I wanted to do the 1,500-meter freestyle because that was our number one most gold medal event out of any sport uh, from this country. So I love the rich history of that. Um, and I just went after it. And I think I knew I could be good if I just worked harder. 
And every time I worked harder, I got better. And that's just the way it was. So I kept hitting those milestones, those crucial points, those inflection points that I needed to, to have the confidence to know I can get to the next level. And that's probably where it gets back to the conversation we're having before. I just break things down to digestible bits. Then all of a sudden, you're knocking on the door of something that only a few people have ever achieved in life. And what was Grant Hackett, obviously from the discussion we just had about MBAs at at Bond and your current job now, you must have been going pretty well at school as well. It's not like you're one of those athletes just piled everything into your sport. Mm. You must have been doing well academically. Yeah, I was doing I was doing well at school. Like every time I tried at school, I, I got, you know, pretty good marks. And what um, would the report say, Grant? Uh, I would project my voice too much sometimes. That was pretty consistent. I was quite loud in the class. And I was like, what? Project your voice. That's one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, I won't shut up. Um, (laughs) So, but they were always, you know, pretty complimentary, I'd have to say. I mean, you might have to ask mum and dad. Um, And then whenever I actually put my mind to something, I always delivered a really strong outcome. So I think that was... Um, probably the consistent theme, if I think back to, I've never actually had anyone refer to my report cards in an interview before, but that would probably be the consistent theme. And don't get me wrong, I had times where I got lazy and didn't do things well. And I I think, I, you know, you get to, to high school and you go through that period of adolescence and, you know, I was more focused on sport than the academic. And then I was like, oh, wow, I really, you know, I whenever I wouldn't do as well as I wanted to at something, I'd kick myself on my own backside and actually turn it around. So, and I guess I always knew I had that ability and I always knew, um, my dad always said, you got to retire to something, not from something as an athlete, regardless of your success, whether it be um, the sporting success or the financial success that might be a body. You got to retire to something, not from something as an Ah. athlete because you're just too young. And I realize that now more than ever what that statement means because it doesn't matter if you're retired like a Tiger Woods and you can do anything you want in life. You need a deep sense of purpose and drive and outcome and goals because that's who you are more than anything else. So um, almost I think that the financial aspects of sport are a negative thing because they stop a lot of people when they finish up getting into something else where they would achieve great things and be really successful. I mean, if you look at even, I know a lot of the Wallaby players pre-95 before it went professional, like you look at the careers of all the Wallabies pre-95, they're all, you know, CEOs, lawyers, doctors, surgeons, like they're an incredible bunch. Um, Where you probably look at the, the transition today, they get paid a lot more, but they're probably not transitioning as well at the sport because there's not quite that incentive or drive to do something because you're allowed to sit on your backside for longer than five minutes and sort of, then mm. eventually you can feel sorry for yourself and lose your confidence and lose your self-esteem. And it can be a, a very vicious cycle once you get into that sort of headspace. Someone that shall not be named mentioned to me that they thought there was a budding musician in Grant Hackett as well. <laughs> Is that true? Because you don't strike me as, I heard guitar. Yeah, yeah, no. Rock it's, band style. Yeah, well, I was in a band for a few years when uh, I was younger. Right. Yeah. Now. So what was it called? Um, so Jaded Time um, was the, the the name of the band. Uh, Jaded so, Time. Jaded Time. What and type of was, a genre? Uh, so this is going back when I was fourteen, so nineteen ninety four. So we'd play the likes of Nirvana, Green Day, Foo Fighters, all those sort of grunge bands, Pearl Jam, so <laughs> Stone Temple Pilots, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. So, yeah, so, no, it was good fun. So I played bass in the band, but I also could play lead guitar and I also played drums. Um, so, yeah, so, no, I enjoyed my music. I still love my music. I don't really play anymore. I don't have a drum set at home by any means. I've you got still the, play acu- the guitar? The acoustic guitar I'll pick up occasionally and learn something new, but probably not as frequently as I should because I find it is one thing that 
you have to be absolutely present for. You stop thinking about everything else. So given I've got such a busy lifestyle, I think um, doing something like that, stopping still and doing something where you're completely present is actually very healthy for you. It's funny you say that. I have no musical ability and this is about you, not me. Um, but I've always been fascinated by people that play the guitar. Yeah. And about five months ago, I thought, right, I'm <laughs> going to try and teach myself. And I've got a bung finger on one hand. <laughs> and it has been the most difficult yet rewarding thing yeah. I've done in five years. Yeah. And when I do it, I have no mental capacity left to think about anything else. Mm. So if I'm trying to play the G chord to the C chord, <laughs> yeah. there's no room for the podcast or no. the cricket commentary or who's playing footy that weekend. It's yeah. complete focus the kids on that task. Killing themselves right now. <laughs> what are they doing? You know, <laughs> no, who would know? Who <laughs> yeah. would know, Hacky? Yeah, yeah. So no, it is exactly that, and that's what I love it for too. Because you do get in, you get present, and there's nothing better than you know cranking out a great tune. I think everyone gets that sense of relaxation. Oh, I'm not at that point. You're not at I'm that not point. I'm not at the cranking okay. out the great tune. So you're just getting your C sharp happening, and that's, <laughs> that's about right. it. It takes that's a while right. to get. To G, uh, then the e, D then. minor. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So, mate, time progresses. You mentioned um, that great Juan Antonio Samaranch. I'm obviously a bit older than you because I was doing sports management at Deakin University probably the first year of my university degree when he announced that. And I was like, oh, how cool is this? We're going to be able to work at the Sydney Olympics and it's uh, in in sports management, which is a path I never went down, yeah. um, thankfully for me. So it gets towards the Sydney Olympics and you had really started to progress at that point. I rarely make notes, but I had to make notes um, about what you'd been doing in the pool. Things were coming along pretty strongly for you as a swimmer. 1997, Pan Packs on debut, won the 1500 metres and beat a previous guest on this show, Thorpey, in the 400 metres. Mm. So how quickly at that stage is your swimming progressing? Because if you're swimming the 100, you're talking mm. tense. If yeah. you're swimming the 1500, you can take chunks, I guess. Mm. You can. You can do it in the, the middle distance as well. But, yeah, you, you certainly, obviously, your margins are going to be greater given the distance is greater. So that naturally happens. Um, I got, in 1996, we had the Olympic trials. And, of course, Kieran won in emphatic style from lane eight in Atlanta, which was, was a great a moment in Australia. Oh, absolutely. Right. I had his times up on my wall. I mean, th that guy was, was God. But he was also a nemesis in our household because he was my brother's rival. So <laughs> right. I knew him from the age of seven very, very well. I mean, he was obviously always a very talented athlete and uh, he went on to achieve great things. Um, it was probably that time in 1996 at the Olympic trials. I was only 15 years of age. <laughs> And I broke, I think I broke six, seven, maybe national records for my age. So I was breaking things in the heats and the finals. And I finished fifth in the, the 15 anime freestyle. And of course, they take the top two to Olympics. But it was after that. So Perkins was in that race? Perkins was in that race. Daniel Kowalski actually won it. Perkins was second. Oh, he got to go to Olympics. They got first and second. Um, I then, in December of that year, ended up winning the trials for the World Short Course team, which I beat Daniel Kowalski and sort of started making a little bit more of a name for myself there right at that very, very top level in our in our main race. I mean, we'd finished first and second in Atlanta. We'd finished first and second in 1992 with Kieran Perkins and Glenn Hausman. Glenn so Hausman, yeah. it was one of these great races. And so for me... I had to be the best in the world to qualify in the top two to make the team. <laughs> that was the challenging thing. So my ambitions were very, very high because they needed to be if I wanted to be the 1,500-meter freestyler on the team. So I ended up beating um, Daniel there, went to World Short Course, and I won World Short Course. And then I went to the Pampax, which you just referred to, and I think I won Swimmer of the Meet there. Um, the freakish thing in that race is, yes, Ian finished second to me, but he was 14. I just turned 17. And, he was 14. Uh, he was 14. And there was, I think it was a, something 
something like, I think it was Ron McKean's 14-year-old record that was four minutes, seven seconds, that was like 20-something years old, that he broke by 18 seconds. He went <laughs> three minutes, 49. And I think we both pretty much would have meddled. I think I would have won and he would have meddled in the, the Olympics the year before. And I just turned 17 and he was, he was almost 15. So it was an incredible meet, that one. And that's when we really came to fruition. And then from there on, we really, well, we both won everything for the next four years. Um, going to Sydney and always tussled in the, the, the 400 meter freestyle. So, um, for me, leading up to Sydney, I probably I hadn't been defeated since the 1996 Olympic trials from age 15, and so there was a lot of pressure on me. I think I was like a dollar one, like I was the absolute favourite to win an Olympic gold medal in the 15. In no, at the Olympics, full stop. Right. So it was, my odds were the shortest out of any other person because I'd had this four-year track record okay. since the last games, um, and always had a decent margin on the rest of the field. So. There was so much pressure going and I didn't realise until afterwards how big that was because like anything, right, it's like boiling water. If you jump into it when it's 100 degrees, you'll feel it. But when it starts off at 50 and then <laughs> sort of creeps up to 100, you don't feel it as much. And I think I really recognised that after those Olympic Games and and you just didn't realise the size of the stage. I remember walking out for the 400 metre freestyle heats and the crowd and the photos and the noise, I was like, wow, this is this is something different, very, very different to what I'd experienced at that stage. So you and Thorpey were going in as red hot, mm. um, expected to Cornella the two and the four. Yep. Hackett, eighth and yep. seventh. Yeah. And possibly under a illness cloud, which yeah. happens a lot to swimmers and happened to you throughout your career. Yeah, and I used to push myself through ridiculous pain barriers all the time, even when I was sick. So I'd make myself sicker, uh, which, you know, I, I learned that lesson the hard way too many times. And So just before we go into that then, yeah. in your peak training, yeah. at your best, leading up to an Olympics, which probably for 2000, 2004, you didn't actually get that opportunity because you had been crook, but yeah. what's, a, what's a week's training involved for a 1,500-metre swimmer? Uh, so basically, you're up every morning, quarter to five, um, seven to eight kilometers in the pool that morning. I would then, you know, have breakfast, 90-minute gym session, normally do physio, massage or some sort of recovery in the afternoon, go back for another swim session, another seven to eight kilometers that afternoon. Wow. So that's six days a week. And you're eating nine meals a day um, is the equivalent <gasps> in terms of the diet. So the diet just to and get the training, the calories in. just to have the calories, to have the energy to be able to, to perform at that level. So huh. it's brutal. And- I'm, you know, there's a lot of people doing that training schedule, but the thing I used to go in with, are you doing it better than the guy in Germany or the guy in the UK or the guy in the US right now? That's the mindset that you have to hit every training session with. And trust me, after you've been flogged the day before and you're getting up at quarter to five to do it again, mm. it's not always easy. It's not always easy. So again, you've got to just break it down, focus on that session, get through that one and the next one. So and that, that, it's brutal. That black line... I've asked Liesl and Kate and Ian that have mm. they've come on the show. They had different approaches to it. As a runner, you talked about the, the bloke from Kenya that broke the, the record and the amount of training he must have done to break the marathon record. He can run hacky and he can mm. look at trees yeah. and cars and buildings and he's going to a different place every day. Mm. You've just got that bloody black line. Yeah, and I wasn't a backstroker either, so I couldn't look at the no, sky. No, so you could see nothing. <laughs> so yeah. 
when you're doing those training sessions, are you so mentally focused on what you're doing or are you sending your mind to another place to get through it? It depends what part of the session. So I'll break it in three parts. We have a warm-up, a main set where you flog yourself and then you have a cool down and maybe some skills around that. So um, for me, the warm-up is something you just focus on, you know, your technique, just getting yourself set up. You've got your training partners there. So, you know, you're stopping at either end because you're on intervals and having a chat, having a joke, having a laugh. Like, you have a good time. Like, we enjoy, I enjoy the people I train with. We always had a great time and um, we'd always push each other. The main set is all about pushing yourself through those pain thresholds, um, particularly for a long endurance one that was on a, a short cycle where the tempo was just full on. Um, I would... Sometimes I'd have music going as I'd try and get myself into that almost like... It's like a daze. It's like a trance. Um, you'd be focused on whatever you needed to do. And then um, sometimes it would just be brutally painful and you just think, I've got to get to the other end, got to get to the other end, particularly when you're pushing cycles, when you've got really hard cycles and you're trying to make those. On the clock. On the intervals. So whether it's across 100 metres or 200 metres or 400 metres, um, it, it is really tough stuff. And then the cool down, that's kind of the fun part of the session and you're just looking forward to getting out there. And so there's so much structure and training like training partners are there, the people you have fun with that you're trying to reach a goal. There's a specific purpose there that you've got and you're training for that particular meet to hit a time or to get on a team to go somewhere that it's very different to what an ordinary person would think about going down to the pool and doing 20 laps Mm. that's hard that's hard that takes like discipline to actually do that but when you're doing it in in the way that i was approaching it from it's almost easier in in one sense that to get yourself down there and do 7k like i couldn't imagine swimming 2k now just on my own down at a local swimming pool that would feel harder than doing that seven or eight k session where i had purpose i had training partners i had structure i had a coach there pushing me so it's a very different environment so when you get out of the pool and you're going to have those nine meals Mm. what was grant haggard's number one go-to Oh, good question. I love eggs. Isn't that weird? I used to have a lot of eggs. I still do. I still have four poached eggs for breakfast this morning. Four, so, big man. Yeah, yeah. So I do every day. Right. Um, I used to have six or seven back then. Not <laughs> always the egg yolks. Um, okay. And so I'd have those. Um, I always, I love steak. Um, so I'd eat a lot of that. But to be honest, you actually get sick of eating at the end of the day because I would have a full meal and then an hour, hour and a half later because your body's just sucked it up. (laughs) I'd be hungry again and would have another full meal and you're actually tired of eating. So you get a little bit sick of it by that point. People say, oh, you can eat whatever you want because, you know, you're doing all that training and it's like, well... If you're going to be a Formula One car, you're not going to put diesel in it. So no. you've got to put the good the good stuff in it to make sure that it runs to its absolute maximum performance that it can. So, um, yeah, so you want to make sure that the diet's right. Back to Grant in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, on Thursday, February 6th, yeah, it could be one of a few people. It may be one of Australia's most loved cricketers, maybe a soccer legend, a basketball superstar, or a fella that has surfed the biggest waves on the planet. Fair to say there's a fair few balls in the air. So apologies, I can't quite tell you who it's going to be at this stage, but all will be revealed on February the 6th. All right, back to hacky. So you get to Sydney. I mentioned 8th and 7th. Um, and you, your Olympic record, mate, it's phenomenal. Three golds, three silvers and a bronze. And, and I've heard you talk about your approach to winning before. The three silvers and the bronze... Are you proud of those or were they missed opportunities? They're failures. Are they? Mm. Every silver medal in my cupboard's a failure. Wow. So I think 
That's a bit of a downer. Yeah, it is. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry to put the conversation well, you, like that. Your face just dropped when I mentioned it. I didn't expect uh, yeah, you to Yeah, well, that. it's funny. I um, I look back on my career, I think over 12 years I lost to 1,500 twice in that whole entire time at every major meet. And that's what I think about in my career. It's it's just difficult not to as a performer and a person who has high expectations of themselves. So um, the silvers, so I think I've got those silvers by, I think it's about 2,400 metres worth of racing, those three silver medals, and it's a cumulative of around a second or less in terms of the, 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 the margin. Wow. So there's nothing in it, right? Like that's just a bad day or a bad touch or not getting it right. Um, the bronze, actually, I've got to say that probably didn't feel like a failure. That was actually a relay in Beijing and we weren't supposed to medal in that. So to get a medal with the other three guys, that felt like a real success. Um, one silver is uh, 2008, which was the 1,500-meter freestyle, which I lost, which I would have been the first to win the three in a row in the same Maluli, event. the Tunisian. The Tunisian. I know uh, a little bit about Tunisian. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. A little yeah. Bit. So, so Maluli got me there and I, you know, my heat time would have won that race. So I totally stuffed that up. That was completely my fault. The 400-meter freestyle, I left my run too, too late in 04 against Thorpey and I was closing the gap on him and he beat me by around 0.1, 0.2 of a second. And then the 4x2 freestyle relay in Athens, we lost that by 0.1 um, and we just didn't get that right. And I felt like my split could have been a lot better too. So I felt like that's the only race I've actually cried after was that one. So What happened? Um, we lost and I felt like I didn't contribute to the degree. I mean, I did the second fastest split behind Ian and I let off and I was up against Phelps and he kind of just got me. But Where were you when you allowed yourself to cry? Uh, massage area. So I just, I couldn't contain it. So I, I'm not the sort of person to, to do it in front of um, people. I'm not that sort of guy. I guess I'm just a bloke. But it was funny. I, it was, it's the only time, good or bad, in my entire career where I've actually been in tears. I just put my, my head down in my towel and someone put my, their hand on my back and I was just like, then, you know, you start sort of sobbing. Um, and, I, and I couldn't believe it. So that it's funny because you would think that would be an individual event would mm. mean more to you, but that four by two meant the absolute world to me. So, yeah, so that was a that was a really tough silver medal. So to be honest, when you, I think you know I've raced sixty three or four times or something. It is in international races at Com Games, Olympics, Pan Packs, or World Championships, and I think I've medaled fifty six or seven of those. Like you've mentioned two, the seventh and eighth mm. that I haven't. Um, but and I think close to forty of them are gold medals. But I don't even think about those. I think about the the silvers. Cause what what should I have done differently? How can I recreate history? How can I do that better? That's that's where I focus my energy, and I I actually can't help it. So yeah, it's it's a it's a weird thing. Did you, you would have seen Susie O'Neill a couple of weeks ago on the radio? Yeah, no, I, I heard about that, and I completely understand it. Yeah. So we'll get to. The wins, although you're the one that's dwelling on the, <laughs> the non-wins. So, you ask the questions. Well, when you get out of the pool, yeah. after in your eyes you've failed, whether you've come seventh, mm. eighth, second, or third, what's going through Grant Hackett's mind then? Because that's that's the gist of this podcast. Hackie, yeah. is how you overcome. So that so going to those Olympics when we spoke about me being sick, I had Epstein Barr syndrome, and I didn't even know my blood test showed up. But my coach changed my training a bit, not to Which do is? the sprint. Uh, Dennis Cottrell. So, uh, sorry, the oh, Epson it's Bar. like a form of glandular fever. Okay. So it's just a virus, and yep. it takes a while to to get out of your system. And I couldn't do the 
the sprint, the fast stuff, the power stuff. So they actually reduced my gym program and just focused me on the distance stuff. So that's why the shorter events, even though I was the world record holder in the 200 the year before, I didn't perform that well in. I just didn't have the power there. So, um, and I was only a few tenths, I think, off even meddling in the 400 meter freestyle. Um, but, and I did a time that, you know, two years before that as an 18 year old, I would have easily got, you know, a medal. So for me, it just wasn't going my way. Um, how do you get over that? We we actually had the ability to put those races behind us pretty quickly because the, the reality is you've get those eight or nine days across Olympics or World Champs or Commonwealth Games where if you're a multiple event swimmer and you have a failure, you have to put it behind you very, very quickly to be able to focus on the next event. So that's what I would do. I would actually focus on the next race um, and put all my energy into that. And I just had to forget about it. There's nothing I could do about it now. Um, and that's what I would do for the, the rest of the week until I got to my main race, which was a 1,500-meter freestyle, and that became my intense focus. I still hear those results, and I'm disgusted by them, to be honest, because they should be a lot better. But there's not much I can obviously do about them now. But I still look back on them, and I think, well, what could have I done better? How could I improve I'm beyond them now, obviously. You, you live with them, you you move on. But I disgusted is a strong adjective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's suitable for how I feel towards it. So I will, yeah. I, I don't mince words when it comes to stuff like that. I'm brutally honest about the way I feel towards that, and I just I know I could have achieved a lot more in those particular races, and I know I had an ability to be able to do so. And so, when, are you happy with what you did achieve? Uh like one of the greatest swimmers of all time. Yeah. Um, yes and no. I, I Like I said, I, I'm very proud of what I've achieved and I, and I loved representing my country. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like there was always something more I could have done or I could have achieved. So I don't want to say that I, I don't recognize the good ones completely, but I do think about the ones where I didn't quite get there or the failures and think, what could I have done better? What and I actually think about that in my approach today. I think I actually when I'm going through a difficult time, whether it's in business or something else, I think, well, what was what what did I do back then that I should be doing now to actually be better at whatever I'm trying to achieve? So But that attitude is the attitude, as hard as it is to listen to, mm. that got you the three gold medals. Well, it's made me what I mean, I think I won for eleven years straight in yep. the fifteen hundreds. So and that was the thing. Like as soon as I would finish, I would critique that race. And not necessarily a good way, even if it was a world record. The first thing I said to my coach after I broke Kieran's world record by seven seconds in 01 was I didn't feel good in the last 500. I was felt like I was dying a bit. I've got to get a bit fitter for that. And it was because I went out in unbelievable pace. Like I, the, the world record in the 800, I would have actually broken if Thorpe and I hadn't broken it twice that year. What it was at the start of the year, I went out nearly two seconds faster than what that was. So there was a reason why I was feeling the way I was. But... It's just the it's just the psyche. It's just the mentality. You're you're forever, eternally dissatisfied. So, did you ever allow yourself to be satisfied after a performance? Yeah, I would enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. Like when I won Olympics for my first individual one in Sydney in front of my home country, that was a dream. Well, let's, from let's, the age of thirteen. Let, let's talk about that. You're racing against a bloke that you had its times on his wall. Yeah. You said right when Juan Antonio butchered Sydney, <laughs> that, that's where you're going to be and you're going to win it. So, what's it like standing on the blocks at that? Bloody swimming centre at Homebush with, let's be honest, the eyes of the entire country mm. on you. They're out there now, the field for the men's 1500 freestyle. The wait is over. It's about to be settled in the pool. It was, um, 
you think about moments in sport when you're growing up, and I probably couldn't ha- ever picture or dream of a better one than that. Here's a guy who was my brother's rival. Like, th- it was a full-on rivalry. They used to beat each other by a hundredth of a second at nationals at state level. And then all of a sudden, this guy becomes a national icon hero and is winning, has won the last two Olympics as a world record holder, has won an emphatic style in 96 when no one thought he could, made the final by 0.2 of a second. So it's unbelievable stuff. Looks very focused today. Looking to create history. Barcelona, Atlanta. And the question hangs in the air. Will it be Sydney? Kieran Perkins. And then you get maybe one chance to go to Olympics, but who gets a chance to go to one in their own backyard, particularly Mm. from a relatively small country like Australia? So here I am against a a rival, a hero, um, my own backyard, my first opportunity at Olympic Games. You're You're 20? 20 years of age. I've just turned 20 years of age. I've got, um, you know, the sort of whole nation there supporting you, behind you, you know, and it's our most gold medaled race across any sport in Olympic history. <laughs> it's a big build-up, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a bad situation to be in, right? <laughs> well, so imagine you, you, standing on the blocks as a 20-year-old doing that. You could look at it like that <laughs> or you could look at it as absolute crushing pressure. Yeah, There's true. two ways to look at it yeah, depending true. on your psych, as you say. Uh, absolutely. And um, so for me, I, I had that moment where here I am in lane three and he's in lane four. He's just done the fastest time. Um, in four years in the heat swim, in the heat swim. So Kieran's on fire. He's the first person ever to break 15 minutes in the 1500 in a heat. So everything kind of married up. And then I got the opportunity to obviously have that moment. And I remember, and I can picture it right now, coming down to the last 20, 25 metres of that race and looking up and seeing the yellow touchpad there. Look at this performance by Hackett. Hackett out by about 12 metres. He's increased the lead and the roar has gone up from the crowd. The Australians first and second. It looks likely they'll finish that way. Hackett on the final 50. And thinking, wow, I'm going to become an Olympic, you know, an individual Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> and... Um, I touch the wall and you'll actually see on the footage, I look at the yellow touchpad for a second. I pop my head up because I thought to myself, what happens if someone in lane eight has done something phenomenally good like Kieran did? You have this just moment. And I looked up and I looked at the diving scoreboard, not the main one, and I saw my name there. And I turned around and ironically enough, the guy in lane eight did a phenomenal effort. I think it was Chris Thompson who finished third from the US. And then Kieran finished second. So, you know, and I, and you only want him to finish second. I would hate it if you finished fifth or something like that because you want to just beat your hero. And, and it, so that moment for me was something that, yeah, I, I couldn't have dreamt of a better opportunity like that and then to get the outcome that you desire as well. So I certainly, yeah, I enjoyed that. 25 metres to swim, a changing of the guard. He's left a legend in his wake. He deserves to win. He hasn't lost since 1997. Red Hackett headed for gold. Kieran Perkins will get the silver. Hackett in now. Gold to Australia. Red Hackett wins. Kieran Perkins rides in for second of the silver. I remember finally getting that moment to cool down and do a few laps because you're trying to get that lactic acid out because, you know, there's so many people, there's so many interviews, there's so much attention around you. And I just got that moment where I had my head back in the water and I got a moment to myself where I thought, you've done it, you've done it. And so that was just the best feeling. That moment in the cool down was when I just really recognised it for what it was. So in winning, 
you broke Kieran's opportunity to do what you were trying to do a couple mm. of uh, Olympics later. What do you say to him? Do you like? There's always that little handshake in the pool. Do you yeah. actually say anything there, or do you see someone in the in the warm down? Yeah. Afterwards? How do you go about that? Because you'd achieve your dream, but as in sport, you had to crush his. Yeah, true. And that's the way it works, right? And it that's does. that scarcity is what makes it so special, or what makes it such a massive failure. Um, and Kieran, to his absolute complete credit. I had a rivalry with this guy. He was critical of me in the papers. I wasn't a real rival when I was, you know, sort of 16 mm. and first coming on the scene. Like, he had a real go at me, and he was very good at that. He did it to Kowalski. He did it to Hausman. His presence, his mental strength was second to none. And uh, he leant over the lane rope, and we never spoke much. We speak a lot more today, but we never spoke much, and he said, you deserve this. And so, and I never forgot that, and I, I really appreciated that level of respect. So, for me... It was almost a license to enjoy that moment more, getting that respect from him at that particular point in time on the stage that we were on, considering what he'd achieved to that point. So, yeah, it was really nice. So probably, mate, for the first time, and I'm sure we'll circle back to this later on, all of a sudden you are, whatever that term means, famous. (laughs) You have achieved fame. Mm. So Grant Hackett, two weeks before the Olympics, can probably walk around most streets and the average punter doesn't know who he is. Two weeks after the Olympics, Grant Hackett walks down the street, everybody knows who he is. What's mm. that like at 20? Um, I guess I probably had it a fair bit before that with Ian because Ian and I were kind of breaking world records and, and doing things. Um, it's a weird thing, fame. I, I find it – I've always said, wouldn't it be great to be amazing at whatever you do and nobody know about it? <laughs> That's kind of the ideal situation, mm-hmm. right? Be, be that guy that can sit at a cafe, no one has a clue – and uh, but has achieved amazing things in life. He cured cancer, whatever. Um, but it's not possible. So it's not a it's not a reality for me in this country. Um, I don't know. It's quite confronting. Like it's it's hard to be honest. If you're, I'm naturally a private person, so for me, um, you know, when people come up to you, I always give them time, and you know, always very appreciative of their words. And you know, people always talk about where they were when they saw you swim, which is really quite takes me back a bit. I'm like. You forget, you lose perspective because you're in that bubble doing it and then you don't realise how many other people might have been affected by that moment or felt involved at that particular moment at that point in time. So there's some really nice things, but it comes with its stresses too. I mean, you win for you know, nearly a decade straight in your sport. Every time you rock up, the whole country expects you to win and that's not that easy and it comes with an incredibly large amount of pressure and I think... Even with the swim team today, I think, you know, even consistency of results over years for, for individuals on that team has been tough. It's not an easy thing to do. So with with the pressure, the um, we're doing this now and it won't come out for a few months. The episode mm. that just came out yesterday was Hugh Bowman. Yeah. Now talk about pressure because if he lost on that horse, the mm. whole country was going to be up in arms. How did you deal with that? I think Cathy Freeman said mm. to me that pressure is a privilege. Mm. How did you deal with the privilege? It's an interesting way of looking at it, of mm. being the man every time you stepped on the pool deck. Uh, you look at it from a few different... I'm a, quite an analytical person, so I will think through things quite a bit. And I and you think through pressure. Um, the best way to deal with pressure is be prepared. That is the best way because that gives you confidence. Pardon me. You feel like you've done every single thing you can to make sure that that moment... Um, 
gets the best response and you also respect your competitors at the same time because if you are not the best at that very point in time and you've done everything in your power to be the best, then you've got to respect what they've achieved. Mm. So you kind of got to take a few perspectives. I always used to think that that support was positive pressure because people are behind you, they believe in you. So you've got to take that self-belief and confidence and put it in that result. But to be honest, the best way to deal with pressure and people say, oh, what was your mental preparation like? I said, well, my mental preparation is done in the hard work that I did every single day. And I feel good about that. Can't control what anybody else does. So you got to let go of that a little bit. And then you just got to execute your race perfectly and, and do what you need to do. But there's no magic bullet for pressure. It's just your mindset that day, how it's going to deal with it. And sometimes you're paying a price now that might be paid later. Maybe you're going into debt on that pressure because it is a very, very stressful thing and mm. only few people can execute when the, the time actually comes. Can uh, you indulge me now and I tell you where I was? <laughs> um, it's one of my favourite parts of the podcast. Yeah. In 2004, I yeah. was working at Seven as a producer and the boss, Saul Stein, gave me the night off to go and watch the swing. Great man, old Saul. Yeah, he yeah. was a great man. Um, and looked after me. It was the outdoor pool, which was amazing, and yep. it was hot. Um, and I went with the late great Rebecca Wilson. Yep. And I can remember it clearly, just in a singlet and boardies and thongs. Funnily enough, having a couple of beers, mm. sitting in the stand, thinking, "Wow, this is what the Olympics is meant to be about." I'd been in a in a control room, <laughs> in freezing air conditioning, and really shitty food in the media village for for the for the first five or six days. Yeah. And it's the the legend of Grant Hackett. And you need to explain to me and the partially deflated lung, <laughs> you know, and 19 years later it's, a, it's a one lung wasn't working or it was yeah, a punctured yeah. lung um, <laughs> and I can still picture you thumping your chest yeah, when you yeah. won that. And it's, it's one of my favourite Olympic moments, mate. Yeah. That year you'd been sick, sick, sick. I yeah. think um, I think. I remember reading afterwards you were talking about the amount of maybe the amount of antibiotics you'd been on yeah. in the lead up to that. Yeah. It was... 17 courses straight. 17 courses mm. straight of antibiotics. Yeah. Wow. That's all that can't be that good for you. No, no. <laughs> well... 17 courses. You had one of those swimming infections that you just couldn't get rid of. Oh, well, what happened, just to give a bit of prescript on yeah, that moment, please was do. January I got a bit of a sinus infection and I made a commitment that I wouldn't do anything wrong that year, completely disciplined, not miss a thing, no late nights, no, you know, everything was right, not miss a training session or anything involved in that training session. My commitment was there. I wanted to win badly and I wanted to win three gold medals at Olympics. And I went in and uh, got this sinus infection. I was swimming very well, but then... Two weeks later, as I continued to train at that intense level and ignore my body, I woke up at, uh, you know, two o'clock in the morning with a temperature of 41 degrees and pneumonia and went to hospital for five days. So then I had the Olympic trials the following month. So that was February when I went to hospital. Trials were in March, of course, the very famous trials where Thorpey slipped off the block. Oh, Craig Stevens. Yeah, Craig Stevens. So all of that stuff was going on. And then I would, between March and August when the Olympics were happening, I went through 17 courses of antibiotics because I could not get rid of the, this infection. The specialist said, look, you've got two options. One, you have a month off and you fully regenerate because you're young. I was only 23 then when that happened. Or he said, you train with it, you're not going to get rid of it and we can suppress it and you can go to the games. And I said, mate, I said, there's only one option there. And so <laughs> I went on, you know, the antibiotics, I trained and it, it was it was brutal that whole year. And uh, I got to the Olympic Games, I got a very narrow silver, another narrow silver in that 4 by 2 that we've discussed and then I got to the 1500, got that gold medal. I think for me on mental toughness, the, you know, I've been going for this for basically eight months then. 
that's when I ran out. I thought, I'm not competing like this again. I remember getting up on the block after that race and standing up there because I knew what I'd had to push myself through mentally, physically to, to get that moment. And so I enjoyed it. But I, then I looked down at the block and I thought, I can't even get down. Like my legs were just so gone. My body was so gone. And then I went home, got a CAT scan and uh, it showed that my left lung, um, they first went under the CAT scan. There was a big ball there and they said, something's really wrong here. And, I, and they said, we've got to inject you with iodine then we'll put you back under. And I thought, geez, what's going on? Because all these things run through. Have I got cancer? Have I pushed myself too far? Anyway, it turns out that my lower left lobe had deflated and was sitting there in a ball because it was blocked with mucus for so long. So I would cough up each day with my physio who would express my lungs, um, a styrofoam cup full of yellow mucus. So that's what I was training with a and sitting with. styrofoam cup? Yeah. So it was it was horrible. It was horrible. So I actually had to have 11 weeks off, which was the biggest break throughout my career to be able to fully regenerate and get my lungs back to normal. So I was quite fortunate in one sense. I've got a total lung capacity of 12.6 liters I had at that stage, which was, you know, tested and validated then. And um, so that was something, what, 160% above of, of what it should have been for my size and age. So <laughs> I was, I had a few fortunate genetic things on, on my side, but the pain that I had to endure through that race because of lack of um, oxygen saturation coming from, you know, obviously my lungs into my bloodstream, it made it brutal. But I learned a lot of lessons because then the next year I raced a lot better and a lot faster than what I did at those Olympics and got World Swimmer of the Year because I took time off when I got a little bit sick or run down and recovered properly. So so two, two, two really obvious questions to me in yeah. that, Hacky. When you go to broadcast an Olympics, you normally sit down in front of a big whiteboard and you say, mm. righto, these are the people that we think can win. Mm. These are a chance. These are sort of quirky operators. They're a good story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the top of the tree are the people you need to do features on and then yep. you've got to promote through the day. I can remember in Athens after your heat swim. Mm. Where did you finish in your heat swim? I I finished second beyond Yuri Prilikov, but I qualified third overall. Right. But it was a, was it a slowish... Relatively slowish. No, time. it was actually quite fast, to right. be honest. Yeah. So what happened there? I think I went fifteen oh three to qualify, which was a pretty fast swim. But I and I remember talking to Patty Welsh afterwards, and I, I felt like that was as fast as I could go, and that was thirty seconds basically off my best time. Right. And I I don't think in eight years I'd even lost a heat swim. So that was the first time that that happened, and I couldn't swim over the top of um, the Russian in the last hundred meters. So. Did you have doubt at that point? Oh, I thought it was over. I had so much self-doubt. I went behind and I said to my coach, it's over, I'm done. I can't go any quicker than that. And I knew I'd have to go 20-odd seconds faster to probably even medal because I had two mm. guys doing phenomenal from, you know, Larson Jensen from the States and I had David Davies from the UK who were doing phenomenally well at those Olympics and we got to produce outstanding times and looked great. So... Yeah, I thought it was over. I took myself the full day to get back into a headspace where I just said every time I got a negative thought, I'm going to just say whatever it takes, whatever it takes because I thought I haven't done four years of work to get here. That was your mantra, whatever it that takes. That was my mantra, whatever it takes. Every time I had a negative thought, I think it's somewhat we have like seven to one, seven negative thoughts to one just as a human being day to day. We beat the hell out of ourselves. So um, I think at that stage I was doing about 30 to one the ratio. <laughs> and so I got to the point where I got a bit sick of it and I just wanted to win that race so bad. Badly. I sort of got back into a clearer headspace, got over my victim mentality that I had for an hour or two after the race and then just said, whatever it takes. And I was shaving my head. I was looking at myself in the mirror, doing all that sort of stuff. Um, 
And so you're looking yourself in the mirror, just saying, right, whatever, whatever it takes. takes yeah, and I was thinking it, I was saying it. So yeah, it was stuff that you probably see in a movie. Or well, something yeah, I was like about that. to say you had the Bruce Willis look yeah, too. Yeah, you had yeah, the head yeah, shaved. Yeah. And- well, it was an open stadium, right? The, yeah. The Greeks didn't get it finished, no. so we, we had no roof on the stadium, and it was over 40 degrees on pool deck. Yeah, and I'm doing so an endurance hot. race. I didn't want to wear a cap where you keep all that heat in. So that's why I decided to shave my head. This is where I was having beers up in stadium, yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, with, yeah, with yeah. my feet up. So the second <laughs> obvious question to me, at the point when the pain got to a level that, that that myself and the listeners won't be able to comprehend, mm. what kept you going at that point, Hacky? Well, some of the best victories are those the one you've got to fight hardest for. And hasn't this been the case? Grant Hackett is now steaming away to join Kieran Perkins as a double gold winner in the classic 1500. And in many ways, this has been his greatest performance. I wanted it so bad, mate. I just wanted it so bad. It meant everything to me since the heat. I haven't stopped thinking about it and what it was going to take for 1,500 metres to, to win that event. It was funny. I had a very clear race strategy. It was first fight. I always had more speed, so the other guys couldn't medal in shorter races. So go out hard, establish a lead, consolidate the second 500, and then the last 500, bring it home. Anyway, I didn't get the lead that I wanted to in the first 500. And where I felt at 500 metres was where I would normally feel that sort of pain at the 1,000-metre mark. So it was absolutely brutal. And then I, you know, the next 500, I couldn't consolidate. I think my lead got down to about 1.3 seconds and I was hurting. I was was in excruciating pain. I was in lane three and the guy um, from the US, Larson Jensen, who was in lane six, um, you know, I could see him closing the gap all the time and he was a back-end swimmer. So I'd normally go out fast, wouldn't close quite as, you know, strong as someone like him who would negative split his races and bring home the back half, you know, stronger than the first. And so um, the next 500, I just tried to consolidate. I knew I wasn't pulling away. And I got to, and I didn't look at him for a while because it breaks your rhythm a little bit if you're trying to look across. And I got to the 1,400-meter mark to do the turn I turned and there was 0.15 of a second, I believe it was, between us. It was nothing. We turned together. For eight years, the closest margin I had had was five seconds or five and a half seconds between Kieran and I (laughs) at the Sydney Olympics. Every other race, World Championship, Com Games, I'd won by, you know, a, a huge margin. So I'd never had really competition. And this taught me a massive lesson in life in that last hundred to push myself to see how badly I wanted it. Um, when I broke the world record, I went, 56.63, 56.63, I think it was, for the last 100 metres, which was the fastest anybody at that stage had come home in a 1500, and everything went great that day. Um, I turned, I came off the wall, I saw him. I did crap myself for a second. Like, I got, whoa, what's he doing there? I, I haven't experienced this before. And then as I came back up to this, the surface, I was like, whatever it takes. I'd actually said that to myself so many times, it's just what I defaulted to. And I just put my head down, focused on my stroke, brought the legs in. I was in excruciating pain. And then I turned down the other end and I could see that I actually made a fair bit of ground on him. And then that gave me the confidence to know I could take him. And I just went for it. And I came home in 56.0. So 0.63 faster? Yeah, than when I broke the world record. So it's like it just taught me the power of competition right there, showing you that you can get more out of yourself in your worst situation than sometimes your best when you're doing it on your own. So um, for me, there was a lot of lessons in life. And this guy was an amazing, amazing person, full stop. I mean, Larson Jensen has been, 
I got an email from, we're good friends now. We were big rivals back then, but, you know, he's got multiple Olympic medals. He was, I get an email on his tag. He was the chief and commander of SEAL Team 5 oh, wow. after he finished swimming. <laughs> he's pretty tough I think dude he's got, I think he's got an MBA from Wharton or Stanford or something like that. So, you know, this guy is, is a serious high achiever, very driven and will take anything onto the extreme. That's his personality. So... And he did the fastest sw- swim that he'd ever done that day, and smashed the American record too. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a tough race. It was a brutal race. And afterwards, as much as I loved that moment, I said, "I'm never swimming like this again." That was that was too far. It's too much. That's the end of Grant Hackett Part A. But don't worry, there's plenty, plenty more goodness to come in Part B. Stick with us. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener